You're listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. We pray that as you hear this word, you would be encouraged and inspired as you pursue Jesus in your everyday life. Mark 14, 1-31 Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters. The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, the one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my body. Blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, 
I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Thank you, Sonia. So some of you might be uh, wondering, what is going on in this church? We're doing Palm Sunday last week, and we're doing Monday Thursday this week. Like, what is happening? So what, what I told you last week was that uh, we can't meditate too much in the life and words of Jesus. And, and, I, and I just felt an inclination to get started early. So we looked at Palm Sunday last week. And, uh, and for those of you maybe not familiar with the, the church calendar, uh, we just read a story that highlights two nights of the week, uh, the Wednesday night that is called Spy Wednesday in some church traditions, and the Thursday night is called Maundy Thursday, the night of the Last Supper. And um, as we look at the life of Jesus, I want us to really catch this idea that Chelsea said to us before Sonia read, that that reading of scripture and looking at the life of Jesus is worship. What, what we're doing when we, we have this moment together, um, it's not just the singing the songs in the service that is worship. There is actually looking at the life of Jesus together like we're doing right now that is worship. And yes, there's teaching hopefully and some equipping and some wisdom and things like that that we receive But what we're really uh, believing for is that we become like him as we behold him. That is what scripture teaches. And as we look at this story, some of you may remember this from a few weeks ago, because we actually quickly looked at it as we received communion a few weeks ago after Sharon Pryor had preached here. And I said this to you, when I look at this story, it reminds me of this childhood game. One of these things is not like the other. Anybody familiar with that game? You know, maybe, maybe we put up on the slide a really simple one, and there's like uh, broccoli and some green beans and some spinach and an apple, right? And like one of these things is not like the other, right? You guys are with me on which one it is, right? Okay, just checking. Just checking. Okay. <clears throat> but um, so when I look at this scripture, I see like betrayal, communion, denial, and desertion. One of these things is not like the other. Did you catch which one it was? Betrayal, communion, desertion, denial. What's communion doing in the middle of all that? It's very perplexing. It's very strange to see it there, and yet there it is. And I think there's really something... um, significant going on here that we can see as we look at the story today, we can see that relentless, unwavering commitment to love within Jesus. 
But before we can really appreciate seeing that in Jesus, I want to say to you that first you have to be able to see Judas in you. First you've got to be able to see Peter in you. Because see, see the scene that we're looking at in this story. Here they are around the table together. And we've been talking a lot about praying together and eating together, right? And, uh, and here they are sitting at the table together. And these are Jesus' closest followers. These are leaders in the movement. These are the guys who, who saw themselves as closest to Jesus. And yet he turns to them and he says, yeah, you're going to betray me. You're all going to desert me. And yeah, you, you zealous one who says, no way, I'm not going to desert you. You're going to deny me. And he says this right in the midst of introducing communion, which he describes in his own terms in the scripture that was read as a covenant, as a commitment. And it's basically Jesus saying, before I make this commitment, this covenant to love you and to forgive you, you need to know one of you is going to betray me. You need to know you're all going to desert me. And, and there's this sense in which before he makes the covenant, everyone at the table needs to see and realize that they're in need of his love and his mercy and his forgiveness. Don't go thinking that your faithful Bible reading or your consistent attendance on a Sunday or your serving at church, you know, your so-called closeness to Jesus makes you exempt from potentially being a betrayer, a deserter, a denier. And there's this really interesting thing that happens. The New King James says it different, and I, I prefer the way it says it. When Jesus says, one of you will betray me, they go around saying, is it I? Is it I, Jesus? Is it me? The reason I, I prefer it is because this NIV that we just read says, like, surely it's not me, right? But there's, there's this thing that's supposed to happen where it's like, is this in me? Could I potentially be the one? Because see, often, here's the thing. This is what I want us to catch before we go into the next part here, is that we often have a tendency, and our, and our culture very much teaches us this, to see evil as out there, or to see evil as in others. But Jesus teaches us to start by looking where? That's it, right within, right here. You start right here. And there are people throughout history who have said different things that I just feel like really agree well with Jesus. And so I want to read a few quotes to us. And the first one is from a famous Russian man named Alexander. I can never say his last name well, but Solzhenitsyn. Okay? I think I did pretty good, actually. I feel good about that. <clears throat> and he, he's a well-known philosopher and author. Passed away about 15 years ago. And he was known for, you know, critiquing communism and the impact he had seen of communism on his nation. But this is the quote from him. He says, The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. 
And he goes on to say how, how that, that line maybe shifts here and there, and there's at times a little more good or a little more evil. But the idea is that the line that separates good from evil, it's not out there, right here in our own hearts. We, we wrestle between good and evil within our own lives on the inside. And another, another story was of G.K. Chesterton, and he was a British author, theologian, teacher, and he was asked by a well-known newspaper to add to this article they were doing, and they wanted him to write about what is wrong with the world. And G.K. Chesterton wrote them a letter to the editors, and it said, Dear Sirs, I am. That was, that was, that was his response to what is wrong with the world. Lastly, one more a theologian I'm a big fan of. He's a Croatian man who saw the horrors of the war in the Balkans in the 90s. And God's really called him to a ministry of calling people to forgiveness and reconciliation. His name's Miroslav Volf, and he holds a seat as a theologian at Yale. And uh, this is his quote. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. And, and the thing I'm sharing all these quotes and these ideas with is that we would catch this reality. That, that there is evil that we wrestle with. And when we look at this story that was read to us, I want us to really consider how we may be Judas, how we may be Peter. You know, we all love to picture ourselves as Jesus, I know. But, uh, but, but at the end of the day, we all love to look around and be like, who's the Judas in my life? Or who's the, you know, but, but in actuality, the call is to start looking within. And you see, what happened with Judas was Judas was expecting the very same thing that we talked about last week when we looked at Palm Sunday. Judas was expecting political revolution. Judas was expecting to be along the ride with Jesus and ascend to a seat of power and influence and prominence. And that's what he was likely hoping for. And we get all these little hints into Judas' motive from other gospel writers that, that he kind of had a thing for money. You know, he was expecting wealth and prominence to be the result of following Jesus. But when it became clear to Judas that that is not where this thing was headed, he's like, I'm out. He sold out. He sold out. You'll, you'll notice, and maybe we'll look at this in a bit, you'll notice that it was right after what we read at the beginning, what Mary did, that it says that Judas decided to, to sell him out, to betray him. It's kind of like this, you know, if you've got stocks and you are watching those stocks start to plummet, what do you often do? What do people do? They sell out, they sell them. Let's get what we can while we can and get off this boat, you know. And that is what's going on with Jesus. Judas. He's like, I'm out of here. So the question is, do we bail on Jesus when he's not serving us the way we expected him to? When he's not coming through with what we thought he should do for us? Because a lot of us come to Jesus with a, I'll serve you if. I heard Tim Keller, one of my favorite preachers, talk about it this way once. He said, when you come to God with, Lord, I will serve you if, it's what's on the other side of the if that's your real God. 
And so, so here's Judas being like, hey, this is, this is looking good. I'm on, you know, we got that. We established that. And then there's Peter. And Peter's all zealous, right? And Peter's like, no, I won't desert you. Even if I have to die, right? He's making his big claim. I'm giving it all for you, Jesus. But when it came down to it, when it was going to cost him his reputation or his security, he was out. He denies Jesus. And the question I would ask of us is, when whether, let's say, standing with Jesus in business with integrity is going to cost you, will you stand? When standing with Jesus in some of his not-so-popular opinions these days, will you stay? And, and it's like, Standing with Jesus at times, it's going to cost you reputation. It's going to cost you security. And Peter's like, oh, yeah, I'm in all the way, even if I have to die. And Jesus is like, oh, not so fast, Peter. And so here's, here's the question I want us to consider. Do we follow Jesus because we see him as beneficial and useful? Or do we follow Jesus because he's beautiful? And he's worthy. Which one is it? And in, in the story that was read to us today, there's sort of this antithesis to Judas. Who is it? The opposite of Judas in the story is Mary. At the beginning. So here we have the story near the front end, right? Where, where she comes in. And what does she do? She, she breaks this flask of super expensive perfume over Jesus. And people are, are really, like, shocked by it. And they, and they look at what she gave, and it's so much. And what I would say to you is this, is Mary saw Jesus as beautiful and worthy. While Judas saw Jesus as beneficial and useful. Judas lost hope in Jesus. Mary was lost in awe and wonder. She was amazed at him. Judas saw Jesus as a means to an end. Mary saw Jesus as the end in itself worth any means she had to give. And what's wild to see is Judas essentially sells out Jesus for what might be, we don't know this for sure because it doesn't, tells us in other texts that Judas sold out Jesus for how many pieces of silver? 30 pieces of silver, right? It doesn't tell us what types, but it's, it's quite possible that it was about a month's wages. So Judas sells out Jesus for this amount. Mary pours out almost a year's worth of wages on Jesus. Now, for Mary to have that laying around, it was very likely the most expensive thing she owned. You could see it as her life savings. She was pouring out everything she had on Jesus. Judas reduced Jesus' worth to a month wages. Mary saw him as worth her life savings. Jesus says this of Mary, he says, she did what she could. 
It's a really simple sentence when he responds to people being frustrated and shocked at what she's done. She did what she could. In other words, she gave everything she could. She gave her security. She gave her means. She gave it all just to worship him. And it says this, the onlookers were indignant. Do you remember that word from last week? The onlookers of the children worshiping Jesus and all the wonderful things Jesus was doing were indignant. The onlookers at Mary's extravagant worship were indignant. Why this waste, they say. And they rebuke her harshly, it says, right? And it's this idea, again, there's this conflict that seems to arise between those who simply want more power and prestige and wealth and true worshipers. There's this conflict that seems to happen. And it's actually in this extravagant act of worship that Mary does that it's sort of like the straw that broke the camel's back for Judas. It's right after this moment. I already referenced that. But it's interesting this. Because when Jesus says what she did, he says that she prepared him for something. She's prepared me for what? Burial. Jesus has been alluding again and again that he's going to die, that he's going to give his life. And who knows what Judas had thought of that up to that point. Maybe he's thinking it's, you know, figurative. Maybe it's this this situation where Jesus is talking about you just got to give it all, whatever, right? But he can see what's happening. The leaders are scheming to how they're going to kill Jesus. Jesus is openly saying these, you know, significant things about himself that we saw last week. And Judas can see the scene building and the situation getting worse. And Jesus flat out says, she's done this for my burial. And Judas like, I'm out. It's right after this story that he goes to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, and makes a plan with them. How he's going to get some money and Jesus is going to die. But Mary's worship of Jesus... I believe it was something that she didn't, like, make herself do it. I'd say this to you. I think true worship is often just a response. It's just this thing that happens inside of you. You see and you start to worship. Your eyes are open. And worship is our best response to Jesus. So what I really want us to catch, the best response that you can have to seeing Jesus and his kindness to you, and his mercy to you, and his grace, and his truth, and his glory, and his beauty, and his goodness, and his justice, is worship. Because if all you see when you see Jesus is a teacher to follow, it'll crush you. Like trying to just be like Jesus by trying harder is going to be really exhausting because he's pretty good. He's perfect, right? And so if you're looking at Jesus and just going, okay, I got that check, now I'm going to try to do it. It's too much of a burden. It's too much of a weight. But there's this reality, we become what we worship. Throughout Scripture, we become by beholding. So I say to you, we can't spend too much time looking into the life and words of Jesus. And so do you want to know the remedy against potential betrayal, desertion, denial in our own heart toward Jesus? Worship. Worship is like the white blood cells. You've got an infection in your body of whatever potential betrayal or all that stuff. 
And the worship is the thing that builds up your immune system to not take the bait, to not fall for the trap. Because as you come into that place of worship, as you say, yeah, I can't give too much time looking at the life and words of Jesus in awe and wonder, there's something that gets built up on the inside of you. There's something that gets built up in your heart where you actually go, yeah, he is worth it. He is worth my life savings. He is worth my expensive perfume. He is worth whatever I could give to him. Whatever he would ask of me, he's worth it. I'm going to stand with him because there's no one like him. And so my encouragement to us is that we overcome the potential Judas or, or Peter denial within us by being like Mary. Look at Jesus again and again and again and again. So that's what we're going to do right now. I want us to now shift on to Jesus. We see in Jesus in this story, again, him at the table, right, with betrayers, deserters, and deniers. And then he says, now I'm going to make a covenant with you. It's pretty unlike anyone else, isn't he? Like, can you, like, show me someone else like this who sits at the table with those who are going to sell him out, those who were closest to him, who are going to abandon him and deny him. And he says, okay, let's make a covenant now. And more than anything, it's him making a covenant. Him making a covenant to love them, to forgive them. It reminds me of a song we sang today. A song that some have considered controversial because they don't like that word reckless. We're seeing a reckless love. And it's, and it's this, this idea is that in the face of so-called danger and a not-so-safe space for Jesus, he still puts himself out there to love the people at the table with him, to leave the door open for them, to have relationship with him, even after they blow it, even after we blow it. He leaves the door open to come on back. There's a covenant to forgive, a covenant to love. And I do want to say this. I'm not, it's just sort of a disclaimer. I'm not saying that you must keep yourself in an abusive relationship. It's not what this is about. But there is something in this. What I am saying is that we can actually take a posture as Jesus followers in any situation, whether close or at a distance from somebody, to, in the words of uh, Danny Silk, keep your love on. That there's, imagine there's a switch, like a light switch, and you turn it on or you turn it off. And you can, in any relationship, and that's important to say, maybe from a distance, okay? The, the abuse part. But in any relationship, there is a resource for us found in Jesus to keep our love on toward people. We've been talking to the youth the last few weeks about this idea and the key phrase that I was so happy they could repeat it last Friday from remembering the Friday before is you control you. Can we say that together? You control you. 
really simple. It's relationship 101. That you in any situation can be an honorable person, even if the person across the table from you hasn't earned honor. Because you're an honorable person. Jesus sits across the table from these guys and says, I love you. Not because they deserve it, not because they've earned it, like we sang in the song, but because he is love. Because he's going to keep his love on. Because he's going to stay in a posture of, I love you, I covenant, I commit to loving you, to forgiving you when you sin. This is this very stable love, I would say. You know, sometimes as spouses, we have this conversation where, you know, it's I love you, and then we say things like, well, why do you love me? Anybody, anybody ever have that one come up inside of you, right? And, and if, if the love is built on, well, you do this for me, you do that for me, you know, usually all those sort of things, like I love you because you're so beautiful. Well, guess what? You're going to get old and wrinkly, and your body's going to change, and you're going to look different than the day you got married. Well, I love you because you love to go hiking with me and do, you know, and all. Well, someday you're probably not going to be able to do that. And on and on it goes, right? What about I love you because I love you? I love you. Why? Because I love you. That's, that's Jesus' posture towards betrayers, deserters, and deniers, towards enemies. I love you because I love you. His love remains steadfast. His covenant to us is based on him and his faithfulness and his righteousness, not ours. That's the beautiful thing about Jesus, is he's locked in to loving you, regardless of whether you're faithful, regardless of whether you're righteous, regardless of whether you're good. He loves you. There is a response, there's a key step in knowing and experiencing that love, and it's, and it's, we call it confession, we call it repentance, it's this thing where we actually acknowledge, I betrayed you, I denied you, I deserted you, I sold out for this, that, or the other thing, and we acknowledge our sin as sin before him, but his covenant, when we do that, is to say to us, I forgive you. That's what the cross is. When we, when we celebrate on Good Friday, it's all about when you screw up, no matter how many times, when you say, I screwed up and I sinned, please forgive me, he says yes. Can you, can you put yourself at the table there that night? See yourself as one of them. Then he says, I'm going to make a covenant. I love you. Like Jesus, you guys, he revolutionized things. He said these crazy words in his famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies. Nobody ever said anything like that. You can search through the pages of history and whatever you can look for and find, you will not find somebody who before Jesus said anything like, love your enemies. Our culture teaches us 
to, to despise those we simply disagree with. Different perspective, different vote in politics, whatever it might be, and it's like you are trained through our culture to hate them, to have nothing to do with them, to blast them, to distance yourself. And Jesus says, love your enemies. And he shows us love for enemies. There's really no one that he lets us off the hook from loving is really what it comes down to. There's nobody around that we're not called to love. Now, there's this thing we talked about already, but I'll say it again. There's a place for some distant love, you know, that kind of thing may be necessary at times. But there's this profound thing on the same night that we read about. In John 13, Jesus says, I give you this command, love one another as I have loved you. This is the wild call to following Jesus. Following Jesus and maturing to become like Jesus will require the experience of betrayal and being deserted, being misunderstood, being falsely accused. If, if we're going to actually mature to become more like Jesus, we will experience those things in life. And then in those experiences, we get to do that worship thing. We look at Jesus. We look at his commitment to love us despite our weakness, despite our failure. And it puts a grace in us to look at those who have let us down and say, I love you. I love you. It's our opportunity and it's our responsibility as Jesus' followers to love as he loved us. So how does Jesus love enemies? Try to make this practical as we close, okay? How does Jesus love enemies? With covenants to love them, to forgive them. He eats with them. Pretty wild. He prays for them. In Luke 22, same story, he tells Peter all about what's about to happen. You're going to deny me, but he's like, but I prayed for you. We see when he's being nailed to the cross and the people who are murdering him, he prays for them. What does he pray for them? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He prays blessing for his enemies. And we have an option, guys. When somebody has hurt us, when somebody has betrayed us, when somebody has let us down, we actually have an option. Will we be an accuser or an intercessor? Will we hurl accusation at them or will we pray for them? The choice is ours. And there's something profound that happens in you when you respond to being hurt with praying blessing for somebody. There's actually something significant that happens to you in your heart, in your life, when you say, no, I'm not going to take part in that. I'm not going to hurl back. I'm going to pray for them. Bless those who persecute you, Jesus says, right? Something profound. So the step-by-step -step process is see Peter and Judas in yourself. 
trying to be like Mary, worship Jesus, but it requires looking at Jesus and his love for you. And I'm telling you what, church, that when we actually grow in this, and it's a lifelong journey, we're not going to listen to a sermon today and be like, okay, got that enemy love thing down now, you know, and walking out of here all set straight, thank you very much, you know. Uh, it's, It's this process where as we let it impact our hearts, what I do want us to know, church, is that we'll turn the world upside down. This kind of love, this kind of posture towards people who are hostile towards you, who, who are maybe talking behind your back, whatever it might be, is a posture that changes the world. And it's very applicable to all of us because guess what? We get hurt most often by those closest to us. Would any, anybody know a thing about that? Yeah? And Jesus equips us to love well even in the midst of that pain. Instead of despising those we disagree with, he invites us to eat with them, to pray for them. This is what it is to become like Jesus. You can't look too long at the life and words of Jesus. They will change you. They'll change you from the inside out. So we're going to do something really um, simple right now. But simple is not always easy, all right? And I want to invite you guys just to stand. And we're not going to, um, we're not going to like, well, I'll explain it to you here. What I want you to do I want you to take a minute and with eyes closed, picture someone who's hurt you. We're not going to go hard into this and deep because this could be a really, you know, intense moment, but this might not be the space for that for you. But all I want us to do is picture someone who's hurt you. And we're going to say, Lord, bless them. And we're not going to shout out names. (laughs) Lord, bless them. We're not going to do that, okay? We're not going to lay hands on the person to our right. (laughs) None of that, okay? But I want us to actually do this. I want us to, like, take on this posture that Jesus invites us into and empowers us for. And maybe maybe you'll have a little more than just blessing. Maybe you're going to pray, Lord, bless their family, bless their children, bless, bless their business, bless their career, bless their whatever, okay? I want you to just take a minute. And if you have felt hurt by someone, and they come to your mind, I want you to just hold them there in your mind. And we're going to say, Lord, bless them. You just put the words on your own lips, Lord, bless them. Lord, bless them. I don't know if it's really quiet in here because this is really hard to do. Or because the instructions weren't very clear, I don't know. But um, I want us to try to do it.
Say out loud, Lord, bless them. So Jesus, this week as we approach this profound celebration on the calendar of your death and your resurrection and all that it means for us, we ask that by your Spirit, you'd illuminate in our hearts and our minds your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness extended towards us, your covenant to love us. Lord, let us see the sin within before we look at the sin out there or in others. And we come to you and we say, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us. And make us, by your grace and your spirit, a people who love well, regardless of category that we put a person in, whether closest friend or worst enemy or anything in between, give us the grace to love well. Lord, make us a people of blessing and a people committed to love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Lifetree Church Sermon of the Week. At Lifetree, we are a family all about declaring and displaying Jesus to transform lives and benefit our city. If you'd like to find out more about Lifetree, you can find us online at lifetree.ca